Built on Genocide is an installation consisting of one significant display of skulls and several two-dimensional artistic works by J. Soul Chippewar. Let's listen to J. Soul introduce himself and talk about his three-dimensional piece, The Mound of Skulls. As a multidisciplinary artist from Chippewa, the Thames First Nation, I've always worked to expose the truth about Canada's genocide against Indigenous peoples. In my work, I explore Canada's ongoing problematic relationship with Indigenous people and the misrepresentation of indigeneity in media, films, television, and pop culture. Built on Genocide is an expansion of all of my work to date. It reveals the truth of settler colonialism, systemic racism, and the ongoing reality of being Indigenous in the illegal apartheid state of so-called Canada, Past and present European settlers and the Canadian government have completely destroyed these formerly unblemished lands with constant and continued injustices towards Indigenous peoples. I have always felt the need to expose and bring ongoing issues into the public eye through my artistic practice. Everything about this installation is potent, beginning with the title. I'd like to start there because I think that the title frames the piece in exactly the way the artist intended. The Luminato website is hosting a section called Festival Story Blogs. Here, you can find an incredible series of pieces by Nawate Gordon Corbiere, who is Anishinaabe and Cree, and who is a historian largely concerned with Indigenous history. Reading her work was hugely helpful to me in beginning to understand what I don't understand. And I'd like to quote some of what she has to say. First, about the word genocide. I'm going to quote from the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, Article 2, the Genocide Convention, 1948, the United Nations, as cited by Nawate Gordon Corbiere. Open quote. The UN defines genocide as any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group by killing members of that group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Close quote. In another post, she writes the following, referring to residential schools. Open quote. In 1920, the Indian Act was amended to make school attendance mandatory for all Indigenous children under 15. Duncan Campbell Scott, Deputy Superintendent of the Department of Indian Affairs, and a known assimilation extremist who advocated heavily for the residential school system, stated, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. I do not think, as a matter of fact, that the country ought to continuously protect a class of people who are able to stand alone. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there is no Indian question, and no Indian department. That is the whole object of this bill. Close quote. With these passages as an introduction, let's listen to a few image descriptions from J. Soul's installation. Mr. Genocide, Visual Description 
This vertical poster features a crisp, sky-blue background with a balding man with a broad nose, Prime Minister John A. MacDonald, in the upper right, depicted with salmon-pink skin. At the center, MacDonald extends an oversized hand toward us. In his grip, surrounded by gleaming bubbles, is a sudsy white pad featuring the words Indian Act since 1876. In the upper left is the title and product name. Mr. Genocide, Magic Eraser. Beneath that, in cheerful red cursive, is the tagline, Kill the Indian in the Child. At the lower right, below MacDonald's hand, is a promise in red all caps, made with real genocide. In the bottom left are three-point form notes in blue all caps, Assimilate, Destroy, Steal Land and Resources. No Crossies. This horizontal poster depicts two men shaking hands, both rendered in steel blue and black with white highlights. The unsmiling indigenous man on our right wears a white medallion around his neck and has long hair, a sloping forehead, a long nose, a raised chin, and a set jaw. The steel blue white man on our left has a similar steely gaze, wears his hair parted on the side, and a high collar with a bow tie. While shaking hands with his right hand, the white man holds his left hand behind his back, fingers crossed. This gesture is highlighted by alternating red and mustard brown lines arranged in a fan pattern above the left hand. Across the steel blue background are bands of mustard brown that resemble streaks left by a wide paintbrush. In those bands, large words are scrawled in red. Quote, lick it, stick it, stamp it. No erases as we travel on our two rows, end quote. Both the handshake and the crossed fingers are surrounded by gleaming white stars. Near the handshake, scrawled in black lettering, is text reading, quote, 154 years of broken treaties, end quote. Above the crossed fingers is similar black text reading, psych, crossies, savage-o-meter. This vertical poster features an unsmiling child with short dark hair and a knit brow, staring straight at us, holding an X-ray in front of his chest. The X-ray, which has the name Savage-O-Meter 3000 printed at the lower left, exposes the child's ribcage in gray and heart in cherry red, with the word Anishinaabe scrawled across it in yellow capital letters. Behind the child, who is rendered in brown and black, is a receding line of four other dark-haired children, all facing us. On the yellow and orange textured background are two more blocks of text. At our upper right is a brown chalkboard which displays the alphabet and a quote from Romans 10.13, quote, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, end quote. At our upper left is a white panel with small black text that reads, quote, The children of Mount Elgin Indian Residential School line up for their weekly Savage-O-Meter X-ray test. End quote. These are raw, unflinching, and hard-hitting pieces, yet they have a grim kind of grit-your-teeth humor as well. JJ, I'd like to ask a few description-related questions about what we've heard so far. What is a silkscreen style? 
So to understand the silkscreen style, it, it helps to understand how silk screens were originally made. So, uh, you know, you've got an, an actual physical screen with very, very, very fine holes in it. And what an artist does is put the medium, so the, the paper or cloth or whatever you're printing on, on one side. And then you've got the, the, the screen. And then on top of that, you put basically what are blocks. You block off certain areas so that when you press ink through that screen, ink goes through in some places and doesn't go through in others. So you put on, you block off certain areas, you then squirt the ink on and you use a squeegee to pull the ink all the way across the, uh, the screen and then the ink goes through in some places and doesn't go through in the other. And then you change the blocks. So you move the, 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 the pieces that are blocking the ink from going through so that you now put on another, that when you put on this, an, another color, you squeeze another color through that screen, you then end up with on your final piece, blocks of color, different blocks. And, and what that means is, uh, from a visual standpoint, is that silkscreen style, whether it's actually done by silkscreen or just done in that style, is you have um, in shapes, individual shapes that are uh, sometimes layered one on top of the other. And they don't always line up perfectly. So there's a little bit of offset from one block of color to another. And it also means if you take that silkscreen style and then enlarge it, you see little pixels, you see the little dots, the little holes where the ink has squeezed through the screen. And it, it kind of, when you, uh, when you enlarge it, it looks a little bit like uh, old comic books or, uh, or old, uh, you know, pulp paper printing where you've got stippled effects because that's the way those colors were created in comic books and so forth. So that's kind of the silkscreen style, whether you actually use a silkscreen or you're doing digital versions in that style. Were there enough portraits of John A. Macdonald uh, that we know what he looks like? How do we know that it's him in Mr. Genocide? Yeah, there, there's, there are enough portraits of John A. And f frankly, he's on our $10 bill, I believe, the Canadian $10 bill. So most Canadians would have enough of an understanding that even if you're, if you're a sighted Canadian, you've probably seen that image or an image of him a number of times. Uh, and then there's just the context of it. So between the, the, the portraits that are around, the fact that, that he's on that $10 bill and the context, it's, a, it's enough to kind of piece it all together. Now let's listen to two paired images, white paper and white paper 2.0. White paper. This vertical poster features a dark-haired boy stroking his chin as he sits on the lap of a balding man with a slight grin, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Together, they read a book titled White Paper, 1969. The subjects are rendered in purple and black with white highlights and are set against a brown backdrop stippled with black specks. A white maple leaf on the front of the book drips white, as does the edge of the cover. On the back of the book, in white cursive, is an encircled logo reading Little Golden Colonizer Book. At our upper right, in a block of white all caps, is a quote that reads, If you no longer speak your language and no longer practice your culture, then you have no right to demand Aboriginal rights from us because you are assimilated with the ruling power. End quote. P.E.T. White Paper 2.0 this vertical poster features a dark-haired man with a graying beard, 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, with three children gathered around him, all reading from a book titled White Paper 2.0. A little girl sits on his lap, and two boys stand behind him, reading over his shoulder. All are rendered in purple and black with white highlights, set against a brown backdrop, stippled with black specks. On the front of the book is a dripping white maple leaf, and on the back, in white cursive, is an encircled logo reading Little Golden Colonizer Book. A comic book speech bubble at her upper right reads, quote, No relationship is more important to Canada than the relationship with Indigenous peoples. End quote. Is there more to be said about the paired images, white paper and white paper 2.0? It seems like the adults are clearly recognizable, but uh, what about the children? So in 2.0, Justin Trudeau's children are actually, they're mostly recognizable by context. So it's known that he has three kids, one girl and two boys. That's who's in the, in the, in the, in the image seated around him, one seated on lap, two behind. Uh, So even though you don't see their faces, um, the context is clear. And with the first white paper, the, you know, the young boy that's sitting on Pierre Elliott Trudeau's lap, this young boy has eyes that are very familiar. These young Justin eyes are, even though it's not exactly uh, clear that this is young Justin, the familiarity is really, there's something there. And then again, the context of it. So between the context and those familiar eyes, that uh, we know it's young Justin Trudeau. It's interesting that in your description, you didn't specify that because this is new, you know, new information to me. Did you consider doing that and decide not to? I did. That's one of those things in the official description of it. That's a pretty, that's a bit of a judgment uh, that I can tell that that's young Justin's eyes. Um, the context is such that uh, I, I I hope that I've left enough breadcrumbs in the description that's got that that's going to lead uh, an audience member there. But uh, you know there are time constraints. There's only so much room we've got. Uh, but I, yeah, I, having conversations like this is valuable because we get to expand on that. And so yeah, I would say that the eyes are are uh, are what triggered it for me. Now, this entire installation is physically placed at Harbour Front. JJ, you visited it in the real world. When you approach it, is it obvious to casual passers-by? It is. It is a mass. I mean, what's obvious is that it's a massive mound of skulls surrounded by these works of art. So it is clear if you are anywhere near if you're walking through this area of harbor front it's it's clear but that doesn't mean that everyone chooses to observe it um there were a number of people who just you know walked on by but for an approaching sighted person it's really difficult to miss this huge mound of buffalo skulls in the middle of a pedestrian walkway i mean really it's it's the size of a small bungalow this mound it's it's really quite large what was the difference between viewing the images online and seeing them in the real world? Uh, there are a couple of key differences. The first one being scale. Um, the images that I described uh, were sent to me as digital files. And when you're looking at those images, they're small. Um, and for sighted people, size matters. <laughs> when you see these images 
printed several feet tall and, and printed on weatherproof boards with their frames secured by massive blocks of concrete ready to handle the wind and weather because this is an outdoor project. For better or worse, that has an impact on the implied importance of the pieces. These aren't just digital images being zipped around. These are physical posters ready to survive the weather. And so there's an additional importance that is, uh, that is implied by that. And then the other thing is that you're seeing them all at once. The way it's set up in person is that you've got the big mound in the middle and then all of the posters are surrounding it. So visitors walk a circular path between the mound and the posters and you can see more than one work of art at the same time. And the way the posters relate to each other becomes more apparent. So my family came down to see the installation with me and my youngest noted a few things about the images. For example, noticed that some had the same color scheme and basic layout. So this was white paper and white paper 2.0 we were just talking about. He also noticed that many of the subjects, specifically non-indigenous subjects, were rendered without faces. And those kinds of things are more pronounced when you spend time with all of the works at once. If you're flipping through them on your screen one at a time, you might recognize some of those things. But it's different when you're seeing all of them at the same time. It has a greater impact and some of the specifics become clearer because you have an opportunity to view them all at once. That's really interesting. Um, I wonder if you can say more about the kinds of reactions you saw from people who walked by, maybe not knowing the installation was there and, yeah. and saw it. So I was I was down there on a drizzly Saturday afternoon um, and the interactions I saw were really quite varied. Most of the people who stopped in that pedestrian walkway to uh, to take in this installation most people were really quite solemn. They would be drawn in by this mound, right? This giant mound of buffalo skulls. And really, there are, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of skulls. They, they look like hundreds, if not thousands, of skulls in this mound. They appear haphazard. They're dark horns, bone-white skulls with fine hairline cracks. And so... People were drawn in by that mound and would spend some time taking it in. And then they would turn to the posters, right? And slowly walk around the, that circular path between the mound and the posters. And they would consider some of the the posters or they would consider all of them one by one. Um, and so that was how most people were interacting. But not everyone. Some people behave in a way that I, I admit that I don't understand. There's this phenomenon of people getting pictures of themselves standing in front of important things. And this is a phenomenon, frankly, that predates photography. People have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. But selfie culture has magnified that and made it even more bizarre. So while I was there, I did encounter a few people who were taking smiling selfies in front of this mound of skulls. And like I said, this is a, this is an existing phenomenon. There have been issues with people taking selfies in concentration camps, at mass graves, at memorials. And this installation is no exception. I, you know, I saw a man taking a smiling selfie with the skulls behind him. He was grinning. And I think for him, this was a 
tourist attraction. Uh, like I said, this isn't something that I, I, I really understand. Um, I think even stranger for me are the folks who just walked through the space without even looking up. I mean, to stride past a mound of skulls that's twice as tall as you are, to stride past striking and, let's be honest, pretty damning posters without even looking up from the ground or looking up from your phone, I find that a little bit... I don't understand it. Um, but some people did just that. They used, they they just kind of followed that circular path for as much as they needed to to get from point A to point B, and they just kept walking. To be clear, that wasn't how most people were engaged with the installation. Most people I saw were, like I said, were, were quite solemn and thoughtful and considering both the mound and, and some of the pieces of, uh, of supporting art around it, the posters around it. Um, but, you know, like I said, it is, it is notable that there were others who were taking it in in different ways. I'd like to finish with more powerful words from Nawate Gordon Corbiere. Open quote. This is what I want people to think about and act on when they hear a land acknowledgement. There's more you can do than recite a few sentences. There needs to be substance and action behind these acknowledgements. One action is supporting the land back movement. When Indigenous activists demand the land back, they aren't threatening to take your house. Land back means giving back control over the lands that have been taken from Indigenous nations. Consider this. Of Canada's 9.985 million square kilometres, reserve lands make up just 0.2%. 89% of Canada is deemed crown land, 41% under federal control, and 48% under provincial control. The remaining 10.80% is under private ownership. There is a lot of land to give back. Ultimately, land acknowledgements are an early practice of reconciliation. They are a place to start on the path to reconciliation, but they're not enough. 